Back in the 70s, board games and improv theater had a baby, and it was called the role-playing game. These games allowed a generation of kids to live out their dreams of slaying dragons and saving kingdoms, all while sitting in their bedrooms and basements. Today, gaming has moved into the cultural mainstream, and role-playing games are back with a vengeance. Join us now as five of these former kids come out of the basement and onto the internet to experience adventure, mystery, and obscure pop culture references. It's time for Roll for Combat. Hey everyone, welcome to Roll for Combat. I'm your GM and host, Stephen Glicker, and in a special episode this week, I sit down and talk with James L. Sutter. James L. Sutter is the co-creator of the Pathfinder and Starfinder role-playing games, and from 2004 to 2017, he worked as an editor and a developer at Paizo Publishing, and he was there ever since Dungeon Magazine. He was also the executive editor of the Pathfinder Tales novel line. Although he no longer works for Paizo, he does have a new book out. Paizo just released his brand new adventure, Firestarters, which most of you probably know is the first adventure in the Starfinder Dawn of Flame adventure path. James and I sit down and talk about a whole bunch of topics as he is a legend in the industry. We talk about his long career at Paizo. We talk about what it was like actually creating Starfinder. We talk about what he's working on with the next version of Pathfinder. We talk about what he's been doing since he left Paizo. We talk about various book recommendations he has. We talk about what it was like in his first day at Paizo. We go all over the place. And of course, we talk about distant worlds which was written by James Sutter back in February 2012, which outlined the solar system of Pathfinder and was indirectly related to, well, Starfinder and what you have today. Anyhow, for those of you who are interested in Pathfinder, for those of you who are interested in Starfinder, for those of you who are interested in the history of the game, for those of you who are interested in Pathfinder version 2, we got a little bit of everything for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. Hey everyone, Steve here. I got a special guest. I have one James L. Sutter. He was the co-creator of Pathfinder and Starfinder, and he is now, well, freelance. But he has come to join me to talk about some Starfinder, talk about Firestarters. We'll probably talk about Pathfinder, Pathfinder 2, his bands, his secret projects, his not-so-secret projects. We're just going to talk and see where it goes. Hello, James L. Sutter, right? L. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, glad to be here. So you're telling me a, a silly story about you're not James Sutter. You're James L. Sutter because you need to make sure that you everyone knows that you are actually the James Sutter because even your Twitter handle has the L in it, I believe. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, so nowadays uh, I'm fortunate enough through Pathfinder and Starfinder and other stuff to have risen in the Google rankings. But when I was first starting out, uh, I actually wasn't the most prominent James Sutter on there. And one of the other James Sutters was this guy who was this like 
horrible anti-Semitic preacher, but like, I don't know much about him, but uh, apparently a bunch of people really hated him to the point where there was a website uh, called exposingsutter.com that was, or no, it was exposingjamessutter.com. And it was dedicated to sort of like talking about this guy and all the terrible stuff he did. And so I kind of looked at that and went, I really need to make sure that I distinguish myself early. So I got the got the L in there, and then it just stuck. Which you know, I like it. Adding that middle initial always feels a little a uh, little distinguished, right? Even if it does mean that half the time people type my uh, my Twitter as James Slutter, you know, it, it happens. So so you're like James T. Kirk, only James L. Slutter. Exactly, it's a, it's... exactly. Trying for that Shatner esque gravitas. What does the L stand for, if we may ask? Oh, it's it's my it's my middle name. It's Lafond. Uh, it's actually my mom's wow. name, and that's the family that I'm closer to. So it's also kind of a, you know, one of those things where it's a it's a nice nice nod to that Lafond clan that I'm part of. Why don't you give a little history? I'm sure a lot of people know who you are, but you're not with Paizo anymore. You're now in the freelance world. But before that, you were like the heart and soul of Pathfinder and, <laughs> and probably Starfinder since well, I don't that know. was your baby. I don't know if I was the heart and soul, but I was definitely one of the people helping hold things together for a lot of years there. Yeah, so um, I was at Paizo for 13 years before I went... Uh, Ronan, I guess. And uh, yeah, I started there when I was 20, actually, and worked my way up until I was working on Dungeon Magazine uh, as an editor there. And then when the magazine licenses went away, I helped found uh, Pathfinder. I was one of the original people developing that world and that game, you know, from the original Adventure Path on through the role-playing game and whatnot, uh, and continued to work my way up there. Um, into higher and higher positions was I did development, I did editing, I did a bunch of different stuff. I uh, started up the Pathfinder Tales novel line. Uh, So I was the original person in charge of that, in charge of commissioning all the authors and getting, uh, you know, editing the books, developing them, that sort of stuff. So I got to run all of that while still doing uh, managing the editorial department and doing development and stuff too. And then eventually when the time came to work on Starfinder, you know, it's something that a lot of us had been thinking about for a long time. It seemed like sort of a natural outgrowth, but I had been uh, fortunate enough to write a book called Distant Worlds a few years earlier where I got to design the solar system for Pathfinder. And so I'd always, since the very beginning, I'd been the one trying to sneak science fiction a lot of the time into into Pathfinder stuff. I mean, back, so I wrote the original Gazetteer for Verissia in Pathfinder number three, like uh, James Jacobs had developed, you know, he'd drawn the map and he'd developed Verissia for his home game, but we just needed a ton more locations. Like his was pretty focused on a few key points. So I got to, you know, put in a bunch of new adventure locations and cities and stuff. And when I first did that, he and uh, Wes Schneider had to kind of sit me down because they were like, look, it's not that you're wrong, but you can't put a space elevator in Verissia. Like that's a, this is not that type of game at this point. Uh, and so I, I sort of ramped it back, but the science fiction element had always been something that I was really into. When Eric finally said, hey, like it's time to pull the trigger and do Starfinder. Yeah, you know, I, I think a lot of people were really interested in it, but I talked to him and talked to folks and it kind of 
for a variety of reasons, um, I got put in the creative director role. And so I, you know, partially because the setting was going to be based heavily on distant worlds, which had been my baby, but also just because I had been one of the people along with Wes Schneider and some other folks who were kind of the the top editorial management there holding things together. And so if we were going to build a whole new department, I I was the person who got the nod to run that. So I spent about 18 months running Starfinder, putting that all together and leading that team. And then uh, sort of all the way up through the launch. And then, you know, I had that Gen Con. It was amazing. Like the game just, you know, busted out. It was like being a rock star at Gen Con. I'm not going to lie. It was really fun. And then I came back and I said, all right, uh, I think I'm done. I think I think I quit. And everybody went, what? What do you like? How could you possibly quit now? Like this game is a runaway success. But I just felt like for a variety of reasons, I felt like after 13 years at the company, uh, it was it was just time to go work for myself and spend some more time focusing on creator owned stuff like, um, you know, novels have always been my first love. And I got to write two of them while I was at Paizo. But I just found myself there were so many writing projects that I was having to turn down or put on hold. And at the same time, I was also, you know, the thing about being a creative director is on the one hand, you get a ton of creative control and that's awesome. Like you get to make the calls at the same time, you're fundamentally a manager. And so very little of my day was spent writing about dragons or spaceships anymore. And so combine that with also some stuff that was going on in my personal life. And it just made sense to leave on a high note and let Starfinder be sort of my, uh, my swan song, right? Try and I, I always think about Bill Watterson and Calvin and Hobbes and how he kind of like left at the high point when everybody was still wanting more. And I felt like, you know, that's, that's what I want to do too. So I left and, you know, the, the team has been going strong since then, you know, Rob McCreary took over as creative director you know, along with uh, Amanda Hammond, I think is the managing developer on it. And then, you know, Owen, Jason Keeley, you know, uh, Joe is now on the team as well. The The team has been doing awesome. And it's been really interesting to watch, you know, now I guess it's been almost, almost a year and a half since I left. And that's a, that's a weird feeling, but I'm still, you know, while I left the company, I'm still playing in the sandbox. You know, I still freelance for Pathfinder and Starfinder. And, you know, it's always, it will always hopefully be a part of my life. But now I just have so much more time to work on other stuff as well. And I'm sure if you ever really got the itch to go back to Paizo, I'm sure they might bring you back if, if, if you ever wanted to, I don't know, come out of retirement, so to speak. <laughs> well, you know, I, I hope so. I mean, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, it's been really fun to go back. Actually, one of the things that's been great since leaving is, no longer being the creative director of Starfinder means I actually have more time to write for Pathfinder as well. Like I've been able to do, do some writing for Pathfinder second edition, which I never would have had time to do if I was still, uh, you know, the creative director on Starfinder. And, you know, one of the things, actually the very last book that I outlined before I, uh, before I left the company was the Pact Worlds book, you know, the big Starfinder setting book. And that book was, such the heart of what I love about Starfinder and about gaming. You know, I'm, I'm a setting guy first and foremost. And so 
that book in a lot of ways really confirmed for me that I was doing the right thing. Because as I was outlining that book, I was thinking, oh my God, I would love to write every part of this. But due to being Starfighter creative director, I have very little time to actually write for this. I only got to write, you know, a few pages out of this book where, you know, if I had had the time, I would have loved to write that thing cover to cover, right? Um, You know, and so I think uh, that really made me feel like leaving and allowing myself to be open to more freelance projects was really the right thing to do emotionally. And it let me do like, for instance, you know, Firestarters, the first of the of the Dawn of Flame adventure path. That's an adventure that I probably couldn't have written if I was working full-time as the creative director. So in a way, it freed me up to do more actual writing for Pathfinder and Starfinder. So you're telling me the secret of being able to actually write more for Paizo is to quit Paizo. I mean, kind of. I I don't know if other people uh, would find that true as well. But uh, certainly, I think my freelance uh, ability has gone up since then. Now that said, also it's, I'm not going to lie. It's weird being out of the company and suddenly realizing like, Oh, you know, when I was on the inside, you know, as creative director, I could just assign myself whatever assignments I wanted. And now, uh, you know, it's, I get what assignments are left over after the other people pick the stuff they want. Right. Or, you know, or stuff that they think I'd be particularly good for. But, uh, it's interesting that after so long, I feel like I'm proving myself all over again. You know, I'm working for, like on the Pathfinder side, I'm working for new developers that have started since I left. So it's really, they've actually hired a bunch of people in the last year. And so it's very strange to go back to the the office of this company that I was at for so long and be like, there's people here I don't know. There's people I'm working for that I've never met. And like to them, I'm just some rando, you know? And so I really, I have to like prove myself from the ground up as if I were a complete stranger. Um, So hopefully I'm doing it. Hopefully people are happy with the stuff I'm writing. I don't think you're some rando. I think you're that rando. You're like, oh, it's that guy. Yes, yes, yes. I know him or I've heard of him. Highly credentialed rando. Right, credentialed rando. But that is fascinating. I have heard that before though, because it's like when you work there, you have to do so much that writing it's it's ironic it always happens too in business like when you get promoted if you do something really well you usually get promoted to the point where you're no longer doing what you were doing well you're now in charge of people doing what you were doing and you never get to do it anymore so exactly exactly yeah, you, you basically were really good at writing and then you end up being in charge of everything and then you never get to write so you leave so you could write I, i've seen this before it's true. Although, you know, I will say, like, I loved being a manager at Paizo. I felt like, you know, like, like you say, some people end up getting promoted into a job they don't really want. I actually loved being a creative director and loved writing uh, or loved working with people just because talking to people is is my other favorite thing to do. And so I feel like I was able to really be a, be of value in that group, like of being a person who, when you've got a bunch of incredibly talented, creative people in a room and they're all ready to kill each other, trying to be the person to, you know, weave that together and make sure that, uh, you know, everybody's working together um, is actually something that I find deeply satisfying. But at the end of the day, you know, I had to sort of step back and say like, look, what is it, what is it that I want to look back on in 20 years 
and have done more of? And the answer is, I want to have written more novels, more comics, more game books. You know, I just, I wanted to be putting more words onto paper. And so in order to do that, I had to give up some of the, you know, being inside the, uh, inside the sausage factory, which I really did enjoy. Well, now you have your own baby sausage factory. When you, you get your face <laughs> yeah, on. exactly. Right. Now I am the sausage factory. That's right. So, boy, man, I don't even know where to start. I could probably talk to you for hours because there's so much I want to ask you. I guess we'll start with the basics. We'll go through Dawn of Flame and Fire Starters. So that's the new adventure path. You wrote the first adventure where yeah. you guys, well, they go into the sun. Like what? Mm-hmm. It's one of these things everyone's been talking about, but there has been very little information about it because they're like, what do you mean you go into the sun? Can you explain the archipelago and how it's all set up? Because even that people just, well, since you also are the pack worlds guy, tell us all about how people live on the sun in the world of Starfinder. So the, the deal with the burning archipelago is when I was first, when I was first designing the solar system, I was trying to think about, uh, you know, how to lay out the book. And I realized that I actually had a little bit of space left over to talk about the sun. And I had been really inspired by, um, there's a book called Sun Divers or Sun Diver by David Brin. It's uh, a classic science fiction book, but it's about uh, this idea that maybe the sort of life that seeded life on earth actually is this progenitor race that lives inside the sun. And I had always thought that was a really interesting idea. And so I was thinking, well, what, what could exist inside the sun? And so, um, you know, obviously most of what lives inside the sun is creatures that are, are adapted for that sort of environment, you know, plasma elementals and weird stuff from the plane of fire or the, or the plane of positive energy, that kind of stuff. But I wanted to have at least some, you know, alien creatures that are a little more like, you know, humans that live there. And so one of the things that I put in there is this thing called the burning archipelago, which is uh, an artifact. It's like a bubble city inside these magical bubbles that like maintain a habitable region inside the sun itself. And nobody knows how the technology works. You know, when people found it from the, when people from the packed worlds found it, they were already abandoned. And so they settled in there, especially of course, the church of Ser- uh, Ray is going to say, Oh my God, we could have, you know, we could live inside the sun. Like what better place for a center of the church of the sun goddess than inside the sun. But a bunch of different people live there, you know, scientists studying it, wizards, etc. And so that's uh, that's sort of the packed world's foothold in the sun. But there's always been this question of are there other, you know, are there other cultures and creatures that live deeper in the sun that we don't know about yet? And in this adventure path, you're going to find out. Yeah, when I read the original Distant Worlds, I remember going through it and seeing all the cool worlds, and then I saw the sun, and then there was a whole thing about how there's creatures that live on the sun. I'm like, what? What? Are you kidding me? There's creatures that live on the sun? Like, I, you know, you expect to have creatures on the other planets, but that one even took me for a loop. I was like, huh. I guess so, but it was... But why uh, not, right? You've got the yeah. plane of fire. So, like, you've got all those creatures that live in a dimension entirely of fire. Like, a sun isn't that different, right? So we kind of ran with that. I guess it makes sense. And it's one of those things that 
a lot of these, you know, adventure paths you can kind of figure out or like there's some, I don't know, I would say like parallel, like, oh, you're going to an undead world. Okay, that's cool. But, eh, you know, I've seen that in movies and stuff. Or you go to a jungle planet or you go to a water planet. But the sun, it's like, wow, no one's done that. Like, it just doesn't really exist in in literature or fantasy or anything, really. It's like, huh. And it's very, it's fascinating. It's definitely out there. So I guess you hope you did some good world building there. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad, uh, it, you know, it's hooked you. Um, and this was an interesting one for me because, uh, you know, obviously I did found it some foundational work on the sun and, uh, things of that nature, but the actual, the whole outline for this AP was created after I left the company. So I was coming in, you know, the Starfinder creative team, made the whole outline, they figured everything out. And actually they had a pretty solid outline for even the first adventure. When they contacted me, they knew what the adventure needed to do to sort of set up the next five adventures. So it was actually pretty, I wouldn't say it was, it was, you know, all planned out, but they had a lot of things that they knew what they needed. And so uh, in some ways that was actually really nice because it meant that I often find that I work a little bit better with some constraints. You know, if you give me a blank canvas, then I might get paralyzed thinking, well, I could do anything versus if you give me a few things that have to be in there, then I can, you know, just sort of build around those things. Um, You know, hopefully I would say like the, uh, you know, the grain of sand that, you know, an oyster uses to make a pearl, but that seems pretty precious so I th- maybe it's more like uh more like an improv sketch where you tell somebody all right you've got a banana and a shoe and you know your mother-in-law like make a scene you know um yeah it was uh it was a lot of fun to work on that um and i was really glad that they gave me the chance to do among other things uh i got to do a starship dungeon which i was really excited to do and the Starship Dungeon starts off, I mean, now there's some spoilers, but there's a. it starts off pretty quick. And the, the map is gorgeous. I mean, whoever did that map. Is, Thank you. A beautiful map. <laughs> Thank oh, you. Well, so, you didn't draw uh, that. Dam- you didn't draw that. I didn't map, draw it. Right? I drew the turnover and then Damien Mamoliti did the, uh, did the actual cartography of it. But, you know, it was super fun to draw the sketch for that map because, you know, it's you know, I'm drawing a starship, but also a starship that's basically a dungeon in terms of how the players are going to experience it. And so spoiler warning for everybody, spoiler, spoiler, it's a starship from the plane of fire. And so trying to design a magical starship was really fun, especially with like, what is a, what does, you know, an Afrit themed starship look like? Uh, And also I got to sort of figure out what is the aesthetic of you know starships from the plane of fire you know uh what should they look like and actually uh chris sims the lead developer on the whole adventure path was nice enough to when i turned over the map he said oh this is great we'll make sure that future afrit starships have this same sort of aesthetic so we worked together to kind of build you know because that's one of the things i love about starships and starfinder actually like all the way back in the core rulebook the idea that there are different sort of styles of starships. They don't all just look the same, but like you can tell the difference between a Sheeran ship and like, you know, a human built ship or, you know, a ship from the Xeno Wardens. Like you've got these different aesthetics that I feel is, is really important to making sure you have a fun 
interesting game, especially when Starship Combat is part of it. But yeah, so that getting to design that dungeon Starship was definitely my favorite part of writing the adventure. And I'm glad that it hits people right away because I think it's uh, does a good job of being like, if you like this, this is the sort of thing that you're going to get more of. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. And I play online, so I actually have to turn the maps into interactive like maps on our tool set. And there's so many corners. It's like when it's square, it's really easy to input the map. But there's sure. so many rounded edges and curves and 45-degree angles. Man, this thing is going to be, if I ever run it, it's going to be an absolute nightmare. <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> to a VTG, yeah, but... You- but- you know, that's one of the things. But it looks that, cool. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, that's one of the things about doing a uh, you know a starship map is trying to figure out that uh, that point between you know in real life things are not designed to work with five foot squares, right? Like you know, um, and so trying to find that blend of having some rounded things, having some corners that aren't perfect, but also trying to make it so that you know, you, you minimize the number of squares that are affected, right? And so, like, for me, it was about, okay, well, let's find the general shape of the starship, and then let's, you know, let's stretch it in Photoshop in these different ways and see how can we get the basic idea, but get as many normal usable squares as possible um, so that it's a little bit easier for GMs. Um, but yeah, in terms of putting it online, that's a whole different challenge. You know, it kind of reminds me, and you probably remember this. So uh, I played Age of Worms from beginning to end. And it was either. Oh, yeah? Yes. That, yes. How about that? And this was either the third or the fourth adventure. I forgot which one it was. Took place underground. I don't know if you remember that. And that dungeon was insane. Like nothing was. There was no straight lines. There was cliffs. It was three-dimensional. And I remember, like, just even trying to draw it out was a nightmare, even just on regular graph paper. And afterwards, my players were like, that was the best dungeon we've ever been in because it just was so freaking bizarre. Like, you know, it wasn't straight corridors. It just you got to be you got to be creative. People love it. Right. Well, it was like a it was like an actual cave system, like a real yeah. cave system. And I am trying to remember which one. It was either the third or fourth. It was in the early parts of the event. Which obviously it wasn't the first one, it wasn't the second one. Yeah. Well, you know, that actually it's interesting that you mentioned Age of Worms because that uh the Whispering Cairn, the first Age of Worms adventure, was the first thing I ever edited for Paizo. That was when I was so I had just I was 20 years old and I had just started working for the company. You know, I had I had cold called Lisa, basically, Lisa Stevens, out of nowhere and just said, like, hey, I see you're hiring for an editor-in-chief for Amazing Stories. I am totally not qualified for that job, but, you know, like, here's, here's what I can do. Here's what I've done. You know, I'd been doing journalism for a little bit at that point through college. And so I said, like, hey, you know, do you have anything? And she brought me in for an interview and said, like, hey, we don't have anything, but I'll you know, I like your moxie basically. And so I'll, I'll see what I can find. And so I ended up, my first job at Paizo was finding images for the, the new Paizo.com web store at a Nicola JPEG. That was my job. But I used that to wrangle my way into an editorial internship. And that editorial internship started with pretty much the first day, Eric Mona walked over 
and uh, slaps down this big manuscript in front of me and says, all right, you want to edit? Edit this. And I said, cool. You know what? Who wrote it? And he said, I did. And so I went, uh. So my first job was editing my, you know, my new boss's own manuscript. But, uh, but apparently I did a good enough job that he kept giving me more to edit. And then I, you know, that was how I became sort of the intern and then, you know, eventually an editor on Dungeon and uh, on from there. Man, I think we might have to do this interview in multiple parts because I can go on about this because I've said this on the show. I've actually, I do a segments and I had my favorite dungeons of all time. And I have number one is the Whispering Cairn, especially for low level. I think it's the nice. best dungeon ever written, especially for level one through four. It is absolutely fantastic. I love that. You dungeon. should have Eric on to talk about how he wrote it. I have. I have. I actually oh, have. Had well, then there you go. <laughs> yeah. But, and, and I'm not the only one because um, last year at PaizoCon, was it uh, Lewis? He converted the Whispering Cairn for Pathfinder 2 and ran it because he loved it so much. There's a lot of people nice. out there who know, if you know that dungeon, because it's so freaking cool. I, so wait, so if you edited it, that means you must have the original somewhere, right? Do you still have it? I would <laughs> love to not. See, oh, right. come on. I'd love to the, see it, the unedited version of that. You dungeon. wouldn't believe how much stuff. Um, well, at that point, I didn't even have a desk of my no, own. I heard. Right? I, I um, heard but, because it was supposed to be like 20. The original, Eric told me he wanted it to be 20 adventures. Um, the age of worms, but they had to cut it down to 12. I'm sure it was like probably twice the size. I would love to see like what it originally was. You know, yeah, and it's interesting that so many people have uh, so many fond memories of Age of Worms. I mean, obviously I do too, and it was a great adventure path, but I think it was also, you know, it wasn't the first adventure path, but I feel like for the people who sort of I think of at, when I think about who was around in the beginning of Paizo. And to be fair, I was not in at the beginning of Paizo. Like Paizo had been going for a few years before I came on board. But I feel like Age of Worms was the first adventure path with sort of that team of like, you know, Eric and Jacobs and Wes and Bullman and me and some other people like that team that would go on to do a bunch of other stuff, including Pathfinder. Um, I feel like Age of Worms was when all of that band got together and kind of gelled right and like that's when that's around i feel like that's around when like sarah robinson came on on the art side as well and like you know sean glenn who was the original pathfinder art director like there was just there were a bunch of people coming together and even though the magazines had been going for a while like i think for some folks that was the point where a lot of things clicked yeah i mean the first one was the shackled city which was okay but that's just the concept, because I as and I've been playing D and D since you know seventy seven, and my biggest problem with D and D is like the adventures were like our bread and butter. That's everything that we always liked and we always played, but there was no real connective tissue. And then Dragonlance came out. Remember that? And Dragonlance, oh yeah, was, was okay. It had some issues because you had to. It had like it was like you know you had to have the pre written characters and you had to play them, and it sort of was like. Well, it wasn't like true role playing. It was almost like you were part of an adventure story. So it was kind of there, but not quite there. And it was even weird that you started off at like think the level three. I think you started off, and so 
I remember I was talking to someone and they told me about the Shackled City. And I was like, oh, yeah, it takes you from like level one to 20. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? It's one adventure that goes all the way. I'm like, sign me up. And I went to go buy Dungeon. And sure enough, that's when Age of Worms was just starting. And I was like, all right, let me sit down. And I read Whispering Karn. And I remember sitting in my apartment in Manhattan reading it. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is the greatest thing I've ever read. I'm like, I'm running this immediately. And we did. We ran it. And that adventure path is, there's nothing like that. That adventure path, I remember Eric said, he's like, okay, think of the coolest things in the history of D&D. All right, we're going to put it into this adventure path. You got, uh, let's see, the the wand of, let's say the rod of seven parts. Yeah, we got that in there. Uh, Fighting beholders, sure. Fighting um, mind flayers, sure. Get taken over by a doppelganger. Yeah, we got that in there. You know, meeting tensor. Yep, we got that. It's like every single freaking, oh, hand of Vecna. Yeah, we got that in there. Every single cool thing possible in the history of D&D is in one adventure. It's just, it's fantastic. Yeah, right. And, you know, and it's funny because that really, like, I mean, it's hard to, I do not want to discount the trailblazingness of Shackled City, right? Because, like, that was, that was the adventure path that, you know, sort of started the idea of adventure paths and the folks who came up with those, that idea, that's amazing. And, like, and I actually worked on the, when Paizo published the, uh, compiled Shackled City hardcover, that was my first, like, publishing credit that was the first time i got my name in a masthead for a gaming product was as editing on that book so like shackled city has a huge place in my heart but i definitely feel like you know that that sort of established the idea and then age of worms i feel like really sort of ramped it up and started getting the flavors of a new a new crew in there and then of course there was uh you know after that there was savage tide yeah, obviously there were many reasons I really liked that, but that was also the first time I got to write an adv- for an adventure path, so that was huge. The, actually, Wes Schneider, it was also his first time too. So we both we co-wrote uh, the adventure of the Lightless Steps, and that was our first dungeon adventure path uh, module. So there were there were a lot of firsts back in those days. We were all <laughs> we were all really young and very excited and figuring stuff out, and you know, making. <laughs> Of course, making big mistakes, but also making big, uh, you know, just huge leaps forward in terms of our own creative abilities as we figured out how all this stuff worked. And now it's sort of become the staple of Paizo. It's like, it's, I mean, they come out with a lot, obviously, but the adventure paths are like the bread and butter. Like that's that's like, yeah, you know, they're, that's what they're known for. That's what they come out with every single month. I mean, heck, you know, when Starfinder came out and you did Dead Suns, and uh, one adventure path every two months and people went crazy, including myself. I'm like, not enough. It's like, it's like, it's <laughs> yeah, right. Not enough. Even if you're not going to run them, you know, just to read them. Well, and that was uh, like many things with Starfinder. That was a really strategic decision that we agonized over, but we had to <laughs> The thing about Starfinder is we could never have come out the gates with Starfinder having as many offerings as we did for Pathfinder. Like we just didn't have, we would have had to double the staff size. And instead like Starfinder, the thing with a game like Starfinder is you have to ramp up and make all of these books 
before you make any money from those books. And so how do you afford the two years it takes before you actually start seeing any money from that? And so we really had to carve, you know, resources out from the existing Pathfinder, you know, engine in order to make Starfinder go. Um, and it was incredibly challenging. Like those, those 18 months of making Starfinder, of launching Starfinder were far and away the most challenging time I ever had at the company, you know, more than, more than the magazine transition, more than launching Pathfinder, more than launching Pathfinder Tales or anything like that. Like that was just a brutal gauntlet for everybody involved. And, uh, and everybody really, you know, rose up and did an amazing job, but we had to make some really strategic choices. Um, And so that, played into, you know, what went into the core rule book. It played into the decision to make Alien Archive the size that it is. It played into the uh, the decision to make the Adventure Path volumes a little bit shorter and also to have them be bi-monthly instead of monthly. Um, a lot of it was just about what is feasible, what is, and but also what is enough, right? Because you can't come out with a game and just put out one book and then be like, and we'll be back in six months with another book, you know, like you need enough for people to play. And so we really had to figure out like, what is enough that the game feels supported, but how can we do it like a, without killing everybody involved and B without sacrificing quality. Cause it was really important to like, if we're going to do this, like we need to do all of these projects, right. You know, like, the core rule book itself was just a, God, I don't even know what the word for it is. But like when we originally sat down and talked about what needed to be in the core rule book, you know, I took in everybody's, everybody's insight, you know, what management wanted, what everybody on the staff wanted and talked about like, what is vital to be in this book? And I sat down and paginated it out. And it's like, that's a thousand pages. We cannot, there's no way we can even print a book that large. So figuring out, what could be cut or what could be boiled down and distilled both in the core rulebook itself, but also in the game was really, was really important. And so I think the result is a core rulebook that I'm super happy with because I feel like we did manage to play to kind of everybody's hopes and give people really a tremendous amount of stuff, but in a very condensed boiled down package that means that there is no wasted space. Like every every page in there is vital because we squeezed it uh, as much as we could. Because right, like when you think about it, you think Pathfinder, Starfinder is almost as complicated a game as Pathfinder. Okay, well the Pathfinder book is you know the size that it is, you know five hundred and seventy six or whatever that is. But then also we wanted to have more introductory material to walk people through character creation and everything. And also we wanted setting material and we wanted to put in that in there. And also clearly we need starships to be their own like miniatures game. So that needs to be in there. And so I'm really proud of the fact that we managed to do as many things in there as we did. Yeah. I actually do want to talk to you about the history and creation of Starfinder because it's been, it's been over a year. I think it's safe and, and you don't work for Paizo either. So we could talk about this. <laughs> just... yeah, I mean, yeah, I can talk about it. I can't talk in an official capacity, but right, I can right. tell you about right, the stories from right. when I was there. You could tell us just between you and me, no one else is going to listen about <laughs> yeah, right. Starfinder. But I've heard, that's what I've heard. I heard that Jason Bowman said that it's like, 
the book was like 800 pages, I think even just written. And then you guys had to cut it down. And which must have been horrific to get it down to like 500 and like whatever, 550. Well, you know, it's, it's one of those things, the process of cutting down and like, it's not just cutting, right? Like that, that was one of the big things. One of my sort of philosophies going in is like, it's not about cutting it down. It's about boiling it down. Cause when you boil something, you know, if you, if you simmer a sauce and boil it down, the flavor gets stronger, right? Like, and that's what I wanted. It's like, and I, I find this is often true in my own fiction writing and stuff as well. Like, you know, you write the thing in the way you originally do it. And then you say, okay, I need to cut 20% out of here. And in doing that, you get rid of the chaff, you get rid of, you know, the anything extraneous until what's there is just the best it can be. And obviously, you know, there was some stuff that we just couldn't afford to get into, Yes, there was a lot of stuff that we needed to really sort of boil it down. And some stuff didn't make it in, right? Like Eric's originally wanted there to be monsters in there. Or actually, I think several people wanted there to be monsters in the book. And that just wasn't going to happen. But so that's why we had to do, we knew we had to to do the Alien Archive sort of as soon as possible. But I think that in general, could we have, could we have made that book a thousand pages? Absolutely. But I actually think that for the most part, the game is stronger from us having to make those hard decisions and saying, you know, what is a more concise way to do X, Y, and Z? In part because one of the other goals going into uh, Starfinder was to make it as robust as Pathfinder, but a little bit simpler and easier to use. Like we wanted people to have lots of options, but we also just wanted it to be a slightly easier game to come into because I think that Pathfinder like Dungeons and Dragons before it was really one of those games where, you know, especially with the Pathfinder core rulebook from first edition, like you kind of needed a friend who knew how to play to teach you how to play just sitting down with it. uh, It didn't really walk you through in the way that somebody who was totally new to role-playing games would need to. If you already knew how RPGs worked, then it was fine. You know, that was part of why we did the beginner box um, for Pathfinder, which was very successful. And we tried to take some of that, that ethos, and include that in the Starfinder core rulebook and really sort of help ease people into it. Uh, And I think it really helped. Uh, And I I think that that also... Between you and me, at the time, nobody knew about Pathfinder 2nd Edition, or you know, nobody outside the building knew about Pathfinder 2nd Edition. But we were also very aware, all of us, when working on Starfinder, that this was a chance for us to experiment with different things to see how they would work for Pathfinder. Um, and so I think, like, I think that in Pathfinder 2nd Edition, you're going to see a lot more of that sort of a focus on how to get newer people into the game, right? Like it's not just about the the math and the damage curves and everything. It's about making the game fun and easy to just jump in and start playing. I mean, yeah, one of the fun things about Starfinder, which is really different than Pathfinder, and I actually just had a conversation with Eric Ona about this the other day, is that Pathfinder in the end is is fantasy and fantasy has a lot of baggage with it. You know, it obviously everyone thinks, okay, you're going to have to have elves. You have to have dwarves, hobbits, trolls, dragons, like, you know, all this stuff. And then Starfinder, 
was able to kind of be goofy. You know, that's it's it's funny. It's it's not Star Wars. It's not Star Trek. It's more like Guardians of the Galaxy and some of you know. It's it's a totally it's kind of a goofier version, and it's just fun. It just allows you to just be more relaxed. You can kind of goof around more. And I don't know if that was on purpose or just by accident or, you know, if it was something you were aiming for. But when we play, it's always like kind of like we're always on the edge of goofy. It's always like. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that the having fun with it element is definitely something that we were all really going for. Like when in doubt, you know, definitely one of the guiding principles was like less simulationist, more fun. And we I think we even say that. I'm pretty sure I wrote that somewhere towards the front of the book where it's like really and truly, you know, kind of rule zero, all these things, just have fun with it. And if something, you know, you're not going to, for instance, in the starship uh, combat section, like we don't have rules for throwing or we didn't, <laughs> we didn't at the time have rules with like, using starship weapons against people, you know, adventurers on the ground in ground combat, right? Like you can't just nuke every, every dungeon from orbit. And like, is that simulationist? Does that make sense? No, but it's way more fun because fundamentally we don't want this to be a game about dropping rocks from orbit. We want this to be a game about, you know, going down and exploring alien, you know, alien dungeons and things like that. And so we made a conscious choice to just say like, look, the rules don't allow you to do this thing because we don't think you'll have fun. Um, and I think that, you know, it's very easy in game design to get into a mindset where it's not okay to say that. But I think it's really important to say that. Like the goal here is to have fun and tell a story. And if you're, you know, if you're getting so hung up on, well, that's not how that really works, you're not going to have a good time. Sort of in the same way that I feel like there is a tendency that I sometimes see in role-playing games that I don't really see other places, which is this idea of if a rule can be twisted around to break the game, I must use it to break the game. And I've never understood that because to me, the game is about telling a fun story. And it's not about winning and losing, really and truly. Like, I love it when my characters die, as long as they die, you know, in fun ways, right? Uh, And so I feel like that mentality of we need to make everything ironclad or else somebody is going to use it to break the game. I would much rather say, like, look, I'm here to give tools to people who want to have fun rather than protect against the one person who is not going to play nice. You know, that's my personal perspective. Now, I know that that, you know, as I often found out, that is a very hard line to have with when you've also got like an org play program or various other things. So I totally get why it's important to write very, very consistent rules. But, you know, pushing, pushing for fun and adaptability and versatility was sort of one of my roles. You know, I wanted a game that you could be very silly with, but also that you could run a horror game. You know, like I want you to be able to play both, you know, space balls and also, you know, event event horizon, you know, like the, the system can do both. So I'm very curious to know about the very beginnings because I heard a rumor and I forgot who I was talking to about this. And I asked, when did you guys decide you were going to do Starfinder? And they said two weeks before PaizoCon and when we announced it, 
which means you had to like do everything because <laughs> you had to get into the printer and like in like nine months or something crazy like that. You had to get everything written, tested, laid out in an insanely short amount of time, which backs up what you were saying that it was like super hard. When yeah. You had Starfinder. Like, yeah. I like, can't, I can't remember nuts. if it was exactly, I can't remember if it was exactly that timing but it definitely was it was very close before PaizoCon. but yeah it was a uh, it really we had about a year start to finish from we should make this game to this game is going to the printer and that is you know a lot of people will tell you that that is not enough time to do a game like that and those people would be right um and uh and we knew it but we also knew with the timing of second edition and some other things, like we knew that if we were going to do Starfinder, it was either going to be right now or we'd have to wait like five years to do it. And so Eric made the call. I mean, Eric along with the other managers, but him as publisher, most importantly, um, made the call that like, Hey, we're going to do this. And grant. Yeah, it was, it was a death March. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. It was a really, really hard uh, schedule, but you know we made it. A lot of people <laughs> pulled a lot of uh, a lot of long hours and got some gray hair, but uh, but we did make it through. And I'm really proud of the game that we made. But like, I I will say that we were it was by the skin of our teeth. Like we rewrote the entire way abilities work, like ability scores. That was rewritten like the day before we shipped the book. Yeah, I heard that things were being rewritten over and over again to the point like I've heard the stories that things are just like constantly being rewritten, that you would come up with something tested quickly and then like, no, that doesn't work. Rewrite that or like I can't even remember. I've heard Owen talk about systems that were in the original rules that just never even came close. Yeah, I mean, there was definitely different things that had to get revised, right? Because, you know, it's a big game with a lot of different interlocking pieces, and you can't do it all simultaneously. But we had to do a lot of stuff simultaneously. Um, and so you'd be, you know, writing System X while System Y is still being developed. Um, I, but the two are, you know, integral to each other. But I think I think the the most strenuous one was the ability scores thing. That was the only thing that was like at the very last minute. You know, we had thought everything was fine, and then I can't remember. I think it was Amanda Hammond who was like, "We need to do some extra play testing of this internally," and she got uh, a bunch of folks from the customer service department and had them make characters, and they they hated it. They like, you know, we'd done, we'd done all this other testing with other people, but it just happened that when we gave it to the customer service group, like they said, no, like we rage quit. This was not fun. And we went, oh crap. Like, and so we sat down and had like some emergency, you know, meetings where we said like, how are we going to change this? And I think, as I recall, and it's been a couple of years, so my brain's a little bit fuzzy. I think that sort of Amanda raised that alarm. We panicked a little bit. We went to the the design team. Stephen Radney McFarland had a good idea about how to change, like about a totally different way to handle ability scores and how they would work while still working within the mathematical models. 
And it was an idea that they'd thought about, but then discarded because it was not like they felt that it wasn't quite as elegant or whatever. And I said, no, 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 that's, that's good. Like we think people can use that. So we took that idea. We iterated, like I went in my office and closed the door and like wrote up his ideas uh, into what is now the, uh, the ability scores section of the book, right? Like I wrote those couple of pages and the examples of how to make a character. And we, you know, we went out and we hammered on them and then they went into the book and the next day the book went to print. So it was really a last possible minute thing. But, uh, but that's the version that's in there now and people liked it. So I can imagine that is that you were doing so much testing that people didn't really make characters from beginning to end correctly. You were probably just throwing characters together for testing. And then could it have been that, well, when you actually went through the process like you were supposed to, then you found out, hey, this actually isn't working. Is that how it came about? I think, I think the problem was that it was something like there are so many different types of gamers in any given game or game group. And so we were testing this stuff, but like that particular thing, like the making of characters was being tested by, you know, a bunch of gamers that were really comfortable with a lot of uh, sort of crunchy math and whatnot. And so, you know, we'd look at it and go, eh, this isn't as elegant as it could be, but like, it's fine. And then we gave it to some players who were not as interested in a bunch of crunchy math stuff. And they went, this is way too complicated. Like, this is like doing my taxes. We hate it. And, and as soon as they said it, it, like, we all realized they were right. Like, there was no, <laughs> there was no question. It was like, oh, oh, yeah. Like, maybe, you know, there were things where there were like partial points. Like, it was really, it was very complicated and it was elegant. Like, it, you know, from a mathematical perspective, like, it would have given you the perfect results. But game design is that, and, you know, I'm a little bit talking, uh, you know, not as I am not a rules designer by by trade. Like I, I in no way pride myself on that. But like I think that there is a very important trade off that you know that all game designers kind of know, which is like there's the elegance of the math and the probability, and then there's the ease of use by the player. And you really have to balance those two. And we had gone too far the one direction and had to come back and say, like, no, no, no. The important thing here is that people have fun playing the game. And if that throws the math off slightly at higher levels, you know, what can we do to mitigate that, et cetera? But, like, the important part is that it it doesn't matter how perfect the modeling is if people hate making a character, right? Uh, So we we had to remember that that was one of our precepts is like, this is supposed to be easier, easy and fun. So why don't we talk about some of your other projects? What have you been doing since you left Paizo? That's not Paizo related because we know you're doing some Pathfinder version two stuff that you probably can't talk about. You said to me, you had some projects that are coming out. You had some secret projects. You had a whole bunch of things. Yeah, I've been, I've been pretty busy. I have been doing some work on Pathfinder 2. Um, not for the rules at all, but uh, I've been doing some work for like the Pathfinder Adventure Path, some Back Matter articles. I think I'm... I don't know if I'm allowed to talk to them, but there was some stuff like uh, I'm going to be working... Yeah, I probably can't talk about any of it. Anyway, I'm doing some back matter <laughs> articles. You're doing stuff. You're um, doing stuff. Yeah, and then I've obviously, uh, you know, 
like Firestarters, some different Starfinder stuff. That's been really fun. Um, I'm glad that <laughs> I, one of the things that I loved most about Firestarters was that it proved to me that the team actually wanted to work with me, <laughs> right? Like even, it's a little bit weird when like you're the boss and then you leave and then you find then you come back being like, hey, you guys want to let me play? Um, and then you find out whether or not they actually liked you or whether they were just listening to you because <laughs> you were the boss. Um, so it's been very nice uh, of them to bring me back in as a freelancer. I really appreciated that. And yeah, so I've also been doing uh, some some secret projects stuff that I can't talk about for some other game companies um, that y'all might recognize. And then uh, I've been doing a lot of work on novel stuff. I've been, uh, I recently signed with a new literary agent, so I'm going to be shopping around some science fiction and fantasy novels here very shortly that I'm pretty excited about. And then I've also been doing a little bit, like I got to do some comics work for, um, Howard Taylor has a webcomic called Schlock Mercenary that is a super long-running science fiction humor strip that's been going for, like, it's like every day for the last 15 years. It's a crazy amount of uh, body of work. But uh, he let me write a guest issue of that, which was fun. That'll be going in one of his uh, his compilations. And I also got to do some work with uh, Tyler Walpole, who's one of the, a longtime Pathfinder artists, uh, is putting out an art book for his uh, Blood of Dragons world that he's created. And he brought me in to write some world lore for that and some little fiction snippets. And so I'm really excited for that because it's going to be just a gorgeous book. It's uh, as a writer, I'm, I am deeply in awe of artists. And so anytime I can be in a project that's more art than words, uh, that's pretty exciting. And then you also told me that last year was the first Gen Con that you missed in a decade because you were in your band. Because I do know, yeah, you play, you play what's it, the guitar? Do you play other instruments? Or? I, yeah, I play guitar and bass. Um, and so I've got, uh, I've played in various bands over the years. I've got a sort of just for fun kind of hair metal rock and roll band called Brides of the Lizard God. Uh, that I play with, but this summer actually it was. There's a group called Wars Outdoors, where they're a theater company. Where every Saturday and Sunday in August in Seattle, they would perform the entirety of Star Wars: A New Hope in the park. You know, and it's this super fun kind of punk rock, like low budget but really creative special effects. Like for instance, uh. R2-D2 was a girl on roller skates with a slide whistle, you know, like it really, it was super fun. Um, and so I was playing in the band for that. So uh, playing guitar, there was guitar, accordion, clarinet, and drums. And we uh, together were playing, you know, the Star Wars score uh, behind the whole two hour production. Um, and it was just a blast because it's free. Um, they'd been doing it for years with Star Trek, but this was the first year where they went up to doing a full movie. And so they did Star Wars. And uh, yeah, there were several thousand people who came to see us. It was really fun. And something else I noticed, or one thing I should say, is that I follow you on Twitter. And you are very, very active on your Twitter account. And you put up some pretty strange stuff. I have the picture... What were you doing? You were doing the floss on New Year's Eve. And some <laughs> wacky. Co I was like, what is going on here, man? You know, I feel like the purpose of Twitter is to uh, 
do that do that kind of stuff, right? Like, but one thing you mentioned. So you're a writer, and obviously you make a living writing. So I always like to find out what other writers like to read, and John Stats is the same way. Who's on my show? And I was reading some of the books that you recommended. Um, one of them sounds amazing, but it's not out for like a year or half a year. Gideon of the Ninth. Oh, Gideon the Ninth. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the Gideon yeah, the Night was, sounds bizarre. I was lucky enough to get a uh, advanced reader copy for that. So the uh, the publisher sent me this and said, like, I think you'll like this. Um, and it's it's fabulous. It's uh, basically um, goth lesbian necromancers in space solve a like haunted mansion puzzle dungeon, and it's just it's brilliant. It was really it was really fun and kind of funny and uh, just like the whole take on. Like she breaks magic, uh, like necromancy into all these different schools where it was like, oh, my God, you can make an entire role playing game just based on the different types of necromancy. So, yeah, I definitely people should watch out for that one. But uh, but, you know, I've, I feel like actually I've been really kind of coming home to fantasy the last couple of months. I feel like for a while there, I was a little bit burned out having just read so much fantasy and I was reading more science fiction or more nonfiction but I've read a number of really excellent new fantasy books like Robert Jackson Bennett's Foundry Side is really fun. It's like the magic system is kind of like computer programming. But imagine like Fawford and the Grey Mouser if, uh, you know, if the Grey Mouser were a talking magical item computer programmer. You know, I read Jay Kristoff's Nevernight series, which is I keep having all these I I do sort of like Hollywood style pitches for books that I really like but like it was basically like Harry Potter joins a murder cult like that like it's like what if Hogwarts was an assassin school and so that's really fun very sarcastic and witty you know like I I read the broken earth cycle not that long ago um, you know starting with the fifth season and that totally rocked my world uh, with the magic system and just like sort of the gritty view of sort of an uh, an apocalyptic landscape that like that felt new and different it's i feel like it's kind of rare for a post-apocalyptic novel to feel feel truly new like we've seen so much post-apocalyptic stuff but i feel like uh she did a really amazing job so yeah i feel like you know maybe it's not that fantasy is having a renaissance right now. Maybe it's just that I wasn't paying attention, but either way, <laughs> there's a lot of really good stuff and I'm having a lot of fun. Have you read Brandon Sanderson at all? I have. Yeah. And I've actually, um, uh, you know, I know Brandon kind of casually. I, uh, I've read, uh, I really liked way of Kings. Um, I really liked Mistborn. funny story. So like the, uh, the first time I met Brandon was at, Gen Con a couple of years ago where we were on a panel together uh, about world building and we were we were going back and forth and of course the crowd was packed because it's Brandon but uh, but it was really fun and so at the end of the panel I was like I'm gonna go I'm gonna go introduce myself to Brandon you know like this is this is a good panel it's a good opportunity like I'm gonna go say hi and as I got over there and like reached out my hand to introduce myself he was like oh my God, I just want you to know, like, I'm a huge Pathfinder fan. It's so great to be on this panel with you. And it was like, oh, okay, then we're going to go get lunch. And so that was how I, uh, how I met Brandon Sanderson. But it was really funny because my first novel, Death's Heretic, had just come out. And so I had a copy and like, I, I gave him one. 
Uh, and he looked at it in the book's about 400 pages. And so he kind of looked at it and held it up and was like, so what? This is like about 400 pages, 100,000 words, something like that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, about that. He was like, yeah, cute. <laughs> because, of course, all of his books are 10 bajillion pages. But, uh, yeah, he was super nice. He actually, like, read the book and you know gave me some nice nice comments. And so, uh, yeah, he's a good dude. Yeah, I've met him a few times. I met him way before he was crazy popular, right in the very beginning when he was kind of starting out. But I do remember, yeah, people, I, I mean, I read a lot of fantasy and people were telling me like way of Kings, you got to read way of Kings. And I I've read that book. I read it and I couldn't put it down and I've read it three times. I mean that talk about world building. I mean, obviously he's been working on that since he was a kid, but that is, that is a phenomenal world and his magic systems. I mean, I've read a lot of fantasy and, but he really goes out there, you know, he has magic systems based on music on light, on metal, like he really just, he just, he just comes up with very original stories and very original worlds. And good thing is that he's young, so he's not going to die. Unlike some of these other authors, he seems hopefully, to keep, hopefully, fingers crossed. That's true. But you know, it's like he, he obviously he finished the, the wheel of time, Robert Jordan, Robert Jordan died. And so he had to finish it. And we're always talking, my friends and I, it's like, you know, um, you know, fire and ice is getting up there. George R. R. Martin is not, he's, he's not a spring chicken anymore. And it takes him five years to write the book. I have a feeling they have Brandon Sanderson on speed dial to have him finish up that series too. Cause he's like the only one who could probably do it. Too. Well, you know, I had read somewhere that actually, uh, George, ha- George Martin has in his will that nobody else is allowed to finish it. Like, you know, the T I know the TV series will wrap regardless. Uh, Right. But um, I think that I think that he doesn't want anybody to finish the books if he doesn't finish them. So hope everybody hope you get your get your fix. He's got to start writing a little faster because I read the first book. Oh, my God. It's been over. I graduated college. So that was a long time ago. It's I remember seeing it. And the whole reason I wanted to read it is because it had a blurb from Robert Jordan. And I was like, Oh, Robert Jordan likes this book. I'll pick it up and read it. And then I was like, Oh my God, this book is fantastic. And well, obviously it's become like you know the biggest show on planet earth ever since, but yeah. Well, you know, it's a conversation that I have a lot with other writer friends about this sort of idea of like, what do authors owe their audience? Um, you know, the sort of the question of, you know, uh, Neil Gaiman famously said, you know, George Martin is not your bitch. But, and a lot of authors are like, yeah, you know, like all, all we as an author owe you is the book that you bought, you know, but I really go the other direction. Um, I feel like I've sort of come around to the idea that an individual standalone book, you know, that's that if it's self-complete, if it stands alone, great. Then, then if a fan wants more, that's great, but you don't owe them anything, but a series I feel like a series is a little bit of a promise. Um, and obviously as an author, most of the time when a series doesn't finish, it's not the author's choice. Usually it's because the publisher stopped publishing them. Like 99% of the time, it's either somebody died or the series got dropped. Like most authors want to finish their series. But I think that it's actually, while you don't owe people 
you know, spending every moment of your life writing. Like, and I think it's nobody's business, you know, and, and you know, the people, people who get really mad and, you know, if like, if Pat Rothfuss posts on his Twitter, like, Hey, had a good dinner with the family. And somebody's like, shouldn't you be writing? Like that's a jerk move. But at the same time, I do think it's not wrong for the audience to say like, Hey, we didn't buy a a self-contained book from you. We bought like the first part of a story. What we're buying is the story in installments. And like in the same way that like if you bought a novel and it was missing the last three chapters, you wouldn't just say like, well, this is what I got. Like, I guess this is, you know, I, I guess that's the complete package, right? Because you know that it's not. So I feel like if you have a story like A Song of Ice and Fire or, you know, uh, you know, the King Killer Chronicles talking about Pat, like, I do feel like you have an obligation to make a good faith effort to finish that thing because, because everybody wasn't just buying a finished product from you. They were also investing in the series because they wanted to see the end. So I've really come around to that, uh, that perspective. Um, at the same time, I think that writing is real hard <laughs> and also life happens. And like, I think it's totally reasonable if an author says, Hey, you know, I know you expected this book this year, but it's going to take me two more years because it's not good yet. Like, I think that's fair, but I do think there is kind of an obligation to at least try to finish a story for, uh, for your people. If you have that option. Well, it's funny you mentioned Kingslayer Chronicles because I literally was typing that up as you were talking. I was like, I got to bring up Kingslayer because that's, there's a very famous one. As you mentioned Pat, because he wrote the name of the wind and then the wise man fears and everyone's been waiting for the third book. And he has a lot set up. It's one, it's almost like George R. R. Martin, like, okay, you really built up a lot in these first two books. So we're waiting to see how this all comes together in the third book. And meanwhile, you see him. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm playing D and D and I'm, going over here and at this comic convention and I'm giving all these talks and watch me play video games. And exactly like, uh, where's the book? You know, we like you and you're great and you have, you're very funny and you're great on social media, but, uh, how's the book coming by the way, Pat, is that thing coming out anytime soon? And I agree with you. It's like, okay, we read two thirds of the book. We're, we're kind of waiting for the last part here. And then you can go play video games and do conventions to your heart's desire. But can you at least tell us what's going on? Cause he's very type lipped on it. He doesn't say anything about that book. Yeah. And it's hard. And like, you know, um, well, <laughs> while saying like, yeah, I'm totally like, I'm in that same camp of like, I think you, I think you owe it to the fans to be making a good faith effort at the same time. Like, I also think, it must be terrifying to be Pat right now, right? Like, cause if your first two books are that popular, like there's gotta be a part of him saying, you know, you know, how do you follow that up? Right? Like if you've only ever been up to the plate twice and you've hit home runs both times, how do you have the confidence to know that you're going to do it a third time? And if you don't, like, you know that the entire world is waiting for that next book, you know, or at least it feels like it. And so I totally see how that could be terrifying and lead you to keep thinking it's not done. It's not good enough. You know, that kind of thing. But, you know, 
also part of the job is you got to work through that, right? Like, and if you're having trouble with that, you got to find other people that can support you through that, right? Um, I feel like George Martin has been doing this so long that I feel like he's got to, he knows how to push through and make it happen, right? Um, but but I think he's still got the same thing, right? Like, I think it's really it's really hard to have a lot of expectations, you know? Uh, now that said, right, like, at the same time, it's also fair to say, you know, oh, boo-hoo, there's plenty of authors writing books that are not, you know, that they don't know if they're going to get published, let alone have the entire world wait on them. So it's just a different type of problem. But uh, but I, I can have sympathy and say, still, you got to try and work through it. Yeah, but I remember, I mean, I'm old. I remember when Star Wars came out, you know, I was seven. And it's like, oh, we have to wait three more years for another movie. And back then, especially when you're a kid and like there just wasn't this much media. There was like three years might have been 300 years. And then The Empire Strikes Back comes out. And then, of course, with that ending, you're like, are you kidding me? We have to wait three more years to find out what's going on. Like that was excruciating. But could you imagine? It's like. Okay, Star Wars comes out, then the Empire Strikes comes out, and spoiler warning for those you don't know, but Darth Vader says he's Luke's father, and then okay, uh, George Lucas is gonna go uh, do some uh, gaming and you know conventions for the next ten years. He'll he'll get to the next movie when he gets to it. You guys just hold on to it, meanwhile. But that's what it feels like, you know. It's like you read these books and so much has been set up and you've been reading these books and you're investing years of your life into these books that you want to see the ending. I mean, even when the Harry Potter books were coming out, I remember, I mean, thank God she came out with them at a reasonable pace. But I remember I started reading them when book two was out and I was like, wow, this is really good. And then book three came out and exploded. And I was like, God, I hope she just keeps coming these out and make sure she finishes all seven of them. And she did. And, it, uh, you know, it's like that's the flip side of the coin. It's like, look how satisfying that was to actually see the series all the way through. Yeah, right. And I think that, you know, most authors do if they can, right? Like, that's that's the job. And certainly that's the best thing to do PR-wise. Now, I, I also totally understand getting seduced by the celebrity of like, if you have, if you get really famous for a thing that's not finished and suddenly now you have all these new opportunities that are way shinier than writing. I get that because like, listen, I write full time for a living and writing sucks, except when it's, <laughs> it, it either sucks or it's amazing. And those moments when it's amazing are always bookended by times when it sucks, right? Like it's, you know, I I really disagree with the people I see who say like, oh, you know, a real writer, you you have to like you have to write like you can't not write. It's like, no, like most of the authors I know, it's like going to the gym. You know, you're really glad that you did it afterwards. But in the moment, it's really hard and you'll do almost anything to avoid it. You know, I know so many authors where when they're on deadline, that's when their house is the cleanest it's been for months, you know? Um, so I get it, but part of the job is pushing through that and making sure that you're delivering what you, what you say you're going to deliver. If you want to hear the funniest person on deadline, listen to Dan Harmon. Cause he, he's so bad. I, it's no wonder Rick and Morty takes so long that he will have pitches to do TV shows. And then he waits 
not to the last minute. Like it's like, oh yeah, the pitch is in eight hours. I think I'll start writing it now. And he talks oh, about this. Like, yeah, oh, he's really bad. He's he he does it not even to the last second. Like, oh, I'm in the pitch, and he's literally writing that. You know, he's he's infamous for this. Obviously, he's pretty successful at it, and he's a pretty smart guy. But if you listen to his podcast or listen to some some things when he talks about his writing process. He never finishes things on time, but yet it does get done eventually. He does get it out there. So, and I mean that's the that's the thing that counts, getting it out there. I'm definitely the opposite, man. I always want to do stuff as soon as I can. If I have stuff like hanging over my head, it drives me nuts. But you know, it's like you say, as long as you're getting it done, that's what counts. And I don't know. I mean, I don't do as much writing as you do. I mean, I do some freelance for Paizo, but I have stuff. That's not due for six weeks. In fact, I just looked at the contract and I was like, is this due in four weeks? And it was due in six weeks. And for the last couple of nights, I finished it. And I actually told uh, Jason Keeley, I'm like, I got it. He's like, eh, just wait. I'm like, really? You don't even want it early? I'm like, okay. I guess just polish it up. I mean, it's it's funny. It's the other way, too. It's like, okay, I actually finished this like months early, but they don't even want it early. I guess they just don't have the bandwidth and they expect to review yeah, right. it when you get it. So, Well, speaking of deadlines, you're reminding me of all the things that I should be working on right now. We just have to do this again because we can be talking about everything <laughs> for a long, totally, long totally. time. Before we finish, are you going to be going? So are you going to show up at PaizoCon? Are you going to Gen Con? Are we going to see you anywhere? Um, I definitely won't be going to Gen Con because I think I'm going to be doing uh, The Empire Strikes Back with that same theater group. I couldn't. I had so much fun with A New Hope that I don't think I can skip uh, You know, my favorite of the movies, um, the chance to do that live. But uh, I'll probably stop by uh, PaizoCon. We'll see. Like, I... Uh, I have not been formally invited, but, um, you know, we'll see. Uh, I'm well, sure I'll give you an extra ticket. If you need a ticket, yeah, I'll, I'll get sure you a ticket. I'm sure they won't kick me out. Yeah, I'm sure they won't, it won't kick you out. Well, I'm going to be running a special game there, a very special game. I can't talk about it oh. yet, but I promise, I promise you're going to want to be part of this. So, And I get to invite who <laughs> will to be know. in this Good game. To know. And uh, we're still working out the details, but... You're going to want to be part of this game because it's <laughs> I'm going to give a little hint. It is Starfinder related. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, oh, I think I might know what you're talking about. You, you but... might know what I'm talking about, but uh, <laughs> oh, cool. yeah, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. But yes, I'm putting together the table now and only exclusive people can get on this table. So. <laughs> nice. Well, I appreciate I appreciate the sentiment. Yeah, so I don't know. Um, my conventions this year are definitely lighter um, for a variety of reasons. I need to stick pretty close to home these days. But uh, you know, if anybody wants to find me online, like I'm, like you say, I'm always on Twitter at James L Sutter. Um, happy to talk to folks. Uh, you can also find me on my website at jameslsutter.com. Cool. And obviously, Firestarters, which is out now, that you can get. And then yeah, go go play. We didn't even start talking about all the craziness that's in there, but uh, I really am excited to see what people. I'm excited for everybody to go play it. Uh, maybe it's good that we didn't get into any spoilers, so go play it, and then uh, we'll have to talk again once everybody's got uh, got opinions about it. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely talk again. But thanks so much, James, for being on the show, and I uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again in the near future. Definitely. Thanks so much for having me. Hey everyone, Steve here. Once again, thanks James for being on the show. 
I'm sure you'll be on again, as he and I just managed to scratch the surface of all the things we could talk about, as the history of Starfinder and Pathfinder is extensive, and James has been there for a lot of it. Also, if you want to perhaps meet James and go to PaizoCon this year for free, do check out our free trip to PaizoCon contest. All you need to do is listen to the show. That's right, just listen to our Dead Sons Adventure Path. You don't need to know anything that happened before episode 70. I mean, if you want, you can listen to all the other episodes. But just start listening to episode 70. We give a big recap of everything that has happened beforehand. You can just jump right in, start listening, and then all you need to do is listen to the show, answer a few questions, and then you can get a free trip to PaizoCon. That's right, free airfare, free hotel, free badge, and free banquet ticket. You too can get to go for free. All you need to do is listen to the show and then enter. And with the big announcement yesterday of the Pathfinder version 2 lineup, do look for future interviews and future information on Roll for Combat, where we're going to talk with other developers from Paizo about what to expect for Pathfinder version 2 in the next couple of months. Anyhow, with that, thanks for listening.